We're on Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, to the end of that section, and it's on page 1175 in your Bibles. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that his love, that this love, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. My apologies if I have a coughing fit this morning. Um, I've, uh, I'm recovering from a bit of a cold, as you might be able to hear. Um, but I'm not actually feeling too bad. Um, let me, let me just pray for us again, just for a moment. Uh, Father God, we ask you to come um, and speak to us through your word. We ask you to transform us because we long to participate in uh, your coming kingdom more and more each day. Amen. I wonder if any of you have ever been trapped in a total perspective vortex. Now, most of you probably have no idea uh, what I'm talking about. And if any of you do have any idea what I'm talking about, you will have probably no idea how I'm possibly going to link that to Ephesians 3. But just as a matter of interest, does anyone know what I'm talking about? Almost Star Trek. Um, It's an idea that comes uh, from the restaurant at the end of the universe, which is the sequel to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, And I'm just going to read you a tiny extract that introduces the total perspective vortex. Um, And you need to excuse both the lack of context and also the um, slight gender stereotyping here. Um, But the man who invented the total perspective vortex did so basically in order to annoy his wife. Trintragula, for that was his name, was a dreamer, a thinker, a speculative philosopher, or as his wife would have it, an idiot. And she would nag him incessantly about the utterly inordinate amount of time he spent staring into space or mulling over the mechanics of safety pins or doing spectrographic analyses of pieces of fairy cake. Have some sense of proportion, she would say, sometimes as often as 38 times in a single day. And so he built the total perspective vortex just to show her. And into one end, he plugged the whole of reality, as extrapolated from a single piece of fairy cake. And into the other end, he plugged his wife. So that when he turned it on, she saw, in one instant, the whole infinity of creation and herself in relation to it. To Trintragula's horror, the shock completely annihilated her brain. But to his satisfaction, he realized that he had proved conclusively that if life is going to exist in a universe of this size, the one thing it cannot afford to have is a sense of proportion. 
Now, um, I've, I'm quite a big fan of the Hitchhiker's Guide and uh, all of Douglas Adams' work, which probably dates me a little bit. Um, and, and I think that, that a lot of those books are driven by two fascinations that he has. And the first is the sheer vastness of the universe. But the second is our inability, or maybe even our unwillingness, to really grasp the true nature of that vastness. And he, so he arrives at this rather interesting idea that actually it, it, it is this, this inability actually protects us if we truly grasped the reality of the universe that we lived in, it would blow our minds apart. Um, and, uh, of course, in some ways, I, I'm actually... I almost want to experience the total perspective vortex. I want to risk it. I don't know about you. Um, there's something fascinating. There's something that we long to be able to grab hold of that kind of reality. Um, I think what Douglas Adams has observed there is that... Is that you could say there are two kinds of knowledge. There's facts and data that we can remember and regurgitate. Um, and on the other hand, there's, there's a kind of knowledge that we experience, that we can relate to. Um, it's, it's maybe the difference between knowing about and truly knowing. Um, the universe is uh, 92 billion light years in diameter, apparently, at the moment. Um, that's, that's data, that's knowing about. I can tell that none of you are completely bowled over by that idea because you're all sat perfectly still. But if we were in the total perspective vortex, uh, we would be enabled to see that and experience it for what it really is and relate it to our own sense of reality, to really know uh, in a palpable way what those numbers really mean. Um, that first type of knowledge can only really result in belief and assent. This, the other kind of knowledge, however, transforms us. Uh, it demands a response. Or in the case of the total perspective vortex, it leads to death. Um, and I, I suppose, I don't know if you've had this experience of sitting in church, um, even maybe just now, um, and singing a song, um, and, and knowing that you should be responding far beyond uh, the way you are actually responding. As we, we just sung about, we want to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. What if we actually saw that? It would cause us to fall with our faces on the floor in awe and wonder. But we, we read words like that, and it, and it doesn't cause us to do that, does it? I wish it did. I long for it to do that. But it doesn't. I don't seem to be able to move some of those ideas about my faith from that first kind of knowledge, belief in data, doctrine, into that second kind of knowledge of experience and, and participation. Paul's concern in uh, this passage that we've just read is that we grasp the love of Christ not just as doctrine that we can analyze um, and assent to, uh, but as an experience, as a story that we can participate in, something which issues in a response, in a personal transformation. Um, and, the, and the passage comes at a, at a central pivot point in the book of Ephesians. Um, the first half of the book has been looking at the great story of God that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. 
the second half of the book, which will start next week, um, looks at the sort of how we respond as his followers in practical terms to living out um, that story. And it's typical of Paul's letters, which is in fact typical of letters in the ancient Near East um, that would start with the first section expounding the great, some great truth or some great insight, then exhorting the reader to uh, somehow live out that idea. Um, and I, it's important to recognize the truth that's embedded in that very structure of the letters that we have in the New Testament. It's the, it's the fact that the um, ideas about how Christians are supposed to live are always supposed to be based on the story of God's gracious initiative towards us. Uh, our actions should never be divorced from God's actions towards us. Uh, and that's primarily in the cross. Um, and so this is the connecting, passion, uh, the, ne- the connecting passage that links the story of God in the first half of the book to how we live that out in the second half, between belief and action. And Paul knows that this link is not actually automatic. It's possible, it's even easy to know stuff about Jesus um, up here in the head, uh, but not be transformed by it, not let it actually come home to us. To really be transformed by it, we need to grasp its reality, to experience, to know it, not just know about it. And when we, and then the reason for that is we act out of what we grasp, uh, not out of the data that we know. Um, and what we find here is that that transition is something that requires the work of God in our lives. It's not something that we can do on our own. Um, the central idea of the passage, uh, the central idea that Paul wants us to grasp. Um, that he feels is implicit or explicit in the opening uh, chapters is the love of Christ, verses uh, 18 and 19. That His prayer is that we may have power to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In some ways, it's not a word that's been that obvious, that evident in the book so far. It's not a word that appears that many times. It does appear a bit, um, But actually, the whole story of God pours out of this fundamental, unchangeable reality uh, that God loves us. The gospel is a love story. It is the story of God drawing his beloved people uh, to himself. I want to spend just a few minutes getting a bird's eye view of the book, which uh, maybe acts as a little bit of a summary for the first half, for those of you that have been uh, for those of you who have been here, and might then for, therefore set up the second half of the book for the next uh, few weeks. I'm not going to go into detail, but all of the sermons from the last few weeks are available online. Do feel free to go and have a listen, or, or come and chat to me or Richard if you want to clarify things that we've said. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so back at the start, uh, in chapter one, the book really opens with this magnificent uh, outline of the cosmic story of God that ends in the rule of Christ over all things. And that is something which we get to participate in. And we get to do that because he loves us. It's there in chapter 1 verse 5, that because of his great love for us, um, in love he predestined us. Then, 
uh, in the second half of chapter 1, Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened in order that we might know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And as Richard pointed out, um, when he looked at this, uh, the key point is that we are God's chosen inheritance. We're not just included in this big rule of God plan as a sort of bolt on the side. We are absolutely central to the whole plan that God has for his rule over the world. And Paul's prayer here then is in, in chapter 1 is similar to the prayer in chapter 3 insofar as he, it, it, it shares that sort of longing that we would become sensitized, enlightened uh, to a truth that is beyond cognitive assent that we have been included in this story. Then in chapter 2, um, Paul tells the story of how we get to be included in this great story of God. Uh, because actually, uh, we've all gone our own way, it says. Uh, we've chosen not to live under God's rule. Um, and, and as a result, we are excluded, in fact, from his life-giving presence. Um, and all of us have become, therefore, the walking dead. If you, if you remember what Richard talked about, he, he, just, he described us as being zombies, um, and, and we are no more able to help ourselves out of our own situation than a dead person is able to, give, to find new life. But, chapter 2, verse 4, because of his great love for us, literally because of the love with which he loved us, um, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And he does that through his cross. Uh, this, this act of God is the ultimate leveller of all of mankind. We're all drawn near to God on the same basis, and that basis is God's love for us. Chapter 2, verse 8 says it like this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So by being drawn uh, to him in this shared life, at the shared gift of life. We are also drawn together, united as one. We are equal partners in this story. And the image that Paul uses uh, for uh, this story is the temple. Uh, we've all become bricks in the temple uh, in which God dwells by his Holy Spirit. That's what it says in chapter 2. And, I mean, what an incredible honor. The eternal creator God, the author of this enormous cosmic story of chapter 1, chooses to make his home among us. Now, I'm always into the imaginative associations that would have been going on uh, with a, a passage like this. So, of course, the obvious question is, what temple would have been in the minds of people as they heard this? Now, in Paul's mind, I'm pretty sure he was thinking in the first place of the temple in Jerusalem. He was a good Jew. He knew that temple well. Um, but given that he knew Ephesus very well, he'd spent years there, um, and he knew that a huge number of the people he was writing to would have never seen the Jerusalem temple, would have never been anywhere near it. Paul knew that in their imaginations, uh, they would have been drawn to a different place, to the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world, um, which would have been in view out of the window of some of those uh, folk in Ephesus. So when the temple gets mentioned, this, I think, is what is fired in the minds of uh, of of the Ephesian readers. 
there in 2 verse 21, it says that in, uh, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So if you imagine in the little corner of that picture, there might be this little weak band of Christians in and around Ephesus, battered by persecution, following Paul, this humiliated prisoner. And they were to see themselves as the temple. They were to see themselves um, as this enormous, majestic temple of God. Uh, We asked at the start of this series the question um, of how do uh, you see yourselves? What story do you see yourselves as part of? What reality are you aware of in your daily life? From where do you take your sense of identity, uh, the sense of identity out of which you act? And I think that's the question that Paul is asking um, the folk in Ephesus. Um, Are you, in the first place, a poor, persecuted little minority? Or are you this magnificent temple of God? (coughs) As we go on to chapter 3... Um, We have this little digression in the first half of chapter 3. We're nearly back to our passage. Um, And uh, Paul shows us how this idea of these two stories works in his own uh, life. His work of telling people about Jesus has landed Paul in prison, which was a grotty place to be in that time. Um, Now, Paul could be focusing on the shame uh, of being a humiliated prisoner, chained and hungry, But rather, he chooses to identify himself with a different, a truer story. 3 verse 7 says this, I am a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through through the working of his power. And he tells the Ephesians, don't be ashamed of me, this prisoner, because I am uh, this servant of the gospel. So he's always asking us, to see ourselves in one story and not the other. So that's everything that precedes the passage that we've got to this this morning. He's told us about the story of uh, God's great plan for creation um, and how, because of his love, he has included us into that story. And and that is something that happens to us together. And that means that we're called into a different identity, a new calling. And he's shown how, as a prisoner, he exemplifies uh, that sense of living out this new calling and identity, uh, where uh, the shame of his imprisonment is nothing compared to the glory of the gospel that put him there. And now, he's just about to turn to the big question of the nitty-gritty of what it looks like to live out this big story. Um, And four, just after our our passage, four verse one starts like this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I hope you can see there that sense that he's, he's introducing the themes of the story that he's been telling into the lives of the believers in Ephesus. But, and this is where we drew, truly finally get back to our passage, Paul knows that we can't... Um, it, that if we can't grasp the story from the first half of the book, 
We won't live the stuff in the second half of the book. Uh, We won't live a life of love unless we really grasp the story uh, of love in the gospel. So remember that the temple is... We're going to go through our passage now relatively quickly. The temple itself is very much in people's minds still. It's rattling around in their heads. And it has functioned as a metaphor uh, for the story into which we've been invited. We are united as bricks in a single building. God lives in us collectively. Um, And as the people of God, we are now majestic and we are permanent. So he says in verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, if this is a temple allusion here, um, then it's important to note that this isn't some sort of private Jesus coming to live in my heart, which is popular language, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong language, but I think here the emphasis is on Christ dwelling amongst us, Christ uh, living in the love that we have for each other. Um, He carries on. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, uh, the word established here really is the the foundations of a building that he's describing. We are a community that is built on God's love. Bear with me a second, I'm just going to cough. Yes, so I pray that you being established in uh, God's love may have power together with all God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep. I'm I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt the passage one more time here. Um, And just to note that the the NIV, uh, the translation that we have in front of us, arguably over-interprets what the Greek actually says. A more literal translation would be this, um, that you may have power to grasp this width and length and height and depth and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, which again introduces this vastness that people have got in their minds, the vastness of the temple. The vastness of the temple is supposed to be an image for us of the vastness of God's love for us that we may know the vastness of Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And and note also here that that it is a a prayer for power. It is a power to grasp this love. It, it again, here is something that we rely on uh, uh, from God. Um, We cannot grasp this knowledge beyond knowledge purely in our own strength and with our own minds unless God gives us the power to do so. If we want to become part of this majestic temple of God, if we want Christ to dwell in and among us, we need to pray for and to long for the power to grasp the knowledge beyond knowledge of God's love for us, his loving initiative in the gospel. Now, does that mean that we don't do anything to contribute to that grasp? I don't think it does. In fact, the language here is is very active. 
in verse 18, you could, you could translate it a little bit more accurately if you wanted to. You could say something like, um, and I pray that you would be made able to seize hold of the vast love of Christ. Um, so there is the sense of using the power that God has put in us. And I think there's a sense also that that is a slow, long-term process. He talks about us being rooted and established in love. And we talked about how the established reflects the temple. The rooted word reflects a tree. It's that sense of, um, of our roots slowly developing and sinking into the love of God. And that's what we need. So how do we actually do that? Well, um, he doesn't say much about it here, and it might be that we get a little bit more of an insight into that as we go on over the next few weeks. But there's just, there does seem to be a sense in which um, we have to, to learn it, to dwell on it, to allow it to sink in, uh, to, get, to, to give it the space uh, to ha- for that to happen. Maybe, maybe that simply means making sure that we're in a, a routine of regularly meeting with other Christians, of praying regularly, of reading the Bible regularly. I could, at this point, get on my soapbox about the arts and the imagination as part of really enabling some of this stuff to sink in. But uh, I'm not going to do that, because I think that's just a little corner of what's going on here. But we mustn't let any of those things we could do um, result in us trying to accomplish this grasp in our own strength alone. God remains the source of the power for this, which is, of course, a great relief. Um, because uh, even if we don't meet our own expectations in this, he is up to the challenge of breaking through our own blindness. Um, and he, he sort of underlines that in this little doxology at the end of the passage. And this doxology really draws the whole half of the letter to a close. It's an almighty full stop um, on the first half of the book. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine... Um, and of course he's talking here about our knowledge to grasp his, our ability to power, excuse me, his power uh, to, for, in us to grasp his love. Um, and Paul, I just, I just want to point out how emphatic Paul is. I've, I, there are four levels of verbal redundancy in that little phrase there. Let me point them out to you. He could say, to him who is able to do all, or uh, to, to him who is able to do above all, or to him who is able to do abundantly above all. But literally, he says, to him who is able to do infinitely more abundantly above all. That's how much emphasis he's putting, how, much, um, uh, yeah, how emphatic he is about God's power to enable us to grasp the love of God. According to his power that is at work within us, to him... Uh, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. I want us to take a, um, a moment just to be quiet. Do you long to be given the power to grasp the love of Christ expressed in the gospel? It might be that you could pray for that now. As you start to think through the week that lies ahead of you, 
how might you make space uh, for that power to be at work? How might you make space for those roots to be growing deeper into the depths of God's love for you? Maybe pray again that God would help you uh, to find that time. Father in heaven, we thank you for your vast, majestic love for us. We thank you for giving us the privilege of participating in your story, of building us into a vast, majestic temple that reflects your love. And we long to grasp that love more fully. And we ask that you would do that work in us and that you can show us, that you will show us um, what we can do uh, in that direction. Uh, For your glory in our lives. Amen.